Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. A little while ago, I finally carved out some time to finally file some records and CDs. I'd been procrastinating, but I finally summoned up the discipline to get it done, get that stuff off the floor and onto the shelf. And honestly, it was a task that should have taken, I don't know, 15 or 30 minutes. But it ended up taking a lot longer than that because I kept stopping to examine the artwork and the liner notes of almost each and every compact disc and vinyl album that I picked up. I'd forgotten how much I was into looking at my music collection. What was the artist trying to get across with the artwork on the front, on the back, on the inside? Unless you're still buying physical music products, this is an experience that has been largely expunged from music culture. Yes, there are digital liner notes and digital artwork, and maybe you're curious enough to check out the fields and the metadata after a right-click on the file, but it's, it's just not the same. If you're of a more recent generation, there's a chance that you've never bothered with artwork and liner notes because, well, you've always lived a digital life. You have no idea what I'm going on about. But if you are into vinyl and CDs, you'll understand how much things have changed. Yes, 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 we must roll with the times. But the disappearance of old-school album artwork and liner notes has somehow diminished the music experience just like how we've moved away from things like actual B-sides and bonus tracks. Let me show you what I mean. This is Digital Debris, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and this is Part 2 of a program on what I call Digital Debris, portions of music culture that have been pushed aside by technology and the increasing digitization of the music experience. Last time, we went through the history of B-sides and bonus tracks, two things that are disappearing because we're moving away from physical media and more and more into a song-based economy where albums and singles with extra tracks are going away. This time, it's a discussion of album artwork and how things have been disintermediated by tech. And along the way, I've got some stories about some of the greatest album packages ever, like this one. As the song plays, try to visualize how this album looks. That's The Clash, of course, with the title track of London Calling, released just before Christmas 1979. A couple of notes about the artwork. That's an out-of-focus shot of bass player Paul Simonon trashing his instrument. The photo was taken by Penny Smith, who was following The Clash on an American tour. That picture was taken on September 21st, 1979. Simonon was in a very bad mood that night at the Palladium in New York. He was upset that the crowd just wasn't into the gig, largely because the bouncers had refused to let the audience stand up and get into the show. So towards the end of the set, he spun around and started taking it out on his bass. 
Penny was in the wings, preparing to take another picture when all hell broke loose. She was so startled by what Simonon was doing that she accidentally pressed down on the shutter, and the photo was out of focus because she didn't have time to change the lens on her Pentax camera. And it was about 10.43 p.m., and we know that because Paul broke his wristwatch when he smashed his base. At first, Penny was really embarrassed at the quality of the shot. But the next day, Joe Strummer said he loved it and that it should be the cover of the next Clash album. It has since been named the best rock and roll photo of all time, and it also became an official British postage stamp. Let's get into our album cover artwork history, and the best place to start is at the very beginning. When the recorded music industry was born, there was no such thing as artwork. If you bought one of the super old-school Edison cylinders, Thomas Edison's name was the most prominent thing that you saw in the packaging, and it was usually printed bigger than either the name of the song or the artist. When the flat-rotating disc came along, they were sold in plain sleeves. Their only nod to the visual was the part of the sleeve with the circular cutouts that allowed you to see the center label of the record. Only very, very special records were decorated in any sort of way on the outside, on the sleeve, and there were not a lot of them. For the most part, it was all very stark, very practical, very cheap. Brown paper, cardboard, a little text, and that was it. And these things did very little to protect the fragile record inside. Remember that these records were made of brittle shellac held together with cotton fibers and a little crushed limestone. They were as breakable as thin china or glass. Early record albums were the same. And when I speak of albums of the early 20th century, I'm talking about a book that looked like a photo album. The first label to do this was a German record company called Odeon, which issued a multi-disc version of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. That was in 1909. Inside this book were a series of sleeves, one for each record. Even the cover of this book slash album hinted nothing about what might be on the inside, except the artist, the name of the work, and a few details. Again, the packaging was made of cardboard paper and maybe bound with a little leather. If you were a serious fan, you could buy blank record albums, so you could protect your individual records together, as well as stack your collection on the shelf fairly safely. Then, in 1930, the recorded music industry collapsed spectacularly. The Great Depression set in, and record sales dropped somewhere between 90 and 95%. How could things ever recover from a crash like that? In 1938, Columbia Records had an idea. They hired a 22-year-old guy named Alex Steinweiss, an artist who was very good at poster art. Steinweiss was hired as the label's art director, and at first he thought his job was going to be designing displays for record stores and for newspaper ads. But that's not how it worked out. At that time, Columbia was working on the technology that would result in the 12-inch long-playing vinyl album. But there was a problem. The paper sleeves that had been used for decades were often very acidic, if you stacked a bunch of these EPs on top of each other, that paper left tiny marks in the grooves. Something needed to be done, and Steinweiss was just the guy to do it. He designed a new sleeve made from cardboard and got a box company to develop some special equipment. The result was known as the Record Jacket. The Imperial Paper Box Company held the patent, and the jacket soon became the palette for a new art form. In 1939, as Columbia prepared to release a new record by Rodgers and Hammerstein, Steinweiss was hit by an idea. The new cardboard record jacket was much tougher than the old paper sleeves. 
you could actually print something on them and not damage it. He found a photographer and walked down to West 45th Street to the Imperial Theater. A big marquee hung over the sidewalk, proclaiming the new Rodgers and Hammerstein production. Steinweiss went inside and persuaded the theater manager to temporarily alter the marquee to spell out the title of the new record. The photographer took a picture, and Steinweiss convinced his bosses that their new record should have that image printed on the jackets. They did not like that. This would mean an additional cost of $2,500, a huge sum back in those days. And there was no guarantee that there'd be any return on the investment. There was no assurance that just because a record looked good, that anyone would be enticed to buy it. Eventually, though, they bought in, and that became the first ever example of album cover artwork. It was 1939. And when the record finally hit the stores, sales were 900% above expectations. Okay, let's stop here to talk about another interesting piece of artwork. Think about the cover of the Beastie Boys' License to Ill album from 1986. It's a gatefold package, meaning it folds out into two square feet. Double-sided, of course, so four square feet in total to do something. If you look at the album from the front, we see the tail of a Boeing 727 with Beastie Boys on the tail. The plane has the registration number 3MTA3, but if you hold that up to a mirror, it says, Eat Me. Flip over the record, and you'll see that the 727 has crashed nose first into a mountain. The design credits go to Stephen Birum and World B. Ohms. They came up with the idea of a private jet after reading the Led Zeppelin bio Hammer of the Gods, which featured all kinds of stories of Zepp on their private jet. You gotta fight for your right to okay, back to the story of album cover artwork. Once Alex Steinweiss and Columbia Records showed that a record that looked good on a store shelf could goose sales exponentially, everybody got into the act. By the late 1940s, almost all releases were packaged in decorated sleeves. Steinweiss would go on to design almost 2,500 covers before he retired in 1973. And it wasn't just photographs of the performers, either. The original trend was creating conceptual art designed to capture the mood or the energy of the music within the album. An edition of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue was issued in a blue sleeve with a piano under a New York streetlight. Other newly hired art directors came up with surrealistic designs. New graphic languages evolved. Colors, fonts, illustration techniques, layouts. And people took notice. Labels and artists realized that people could be convinced to buy a record based on just how it looked. One of the biggest early successes was the King Cole Trio. That was an album from Nat King Cole, issued by Capitol Records in 1945. It was an old-school album with four 78 RPM records tucked into the sleeves. When it spent most of its year at number one on the charts, everybody was convinced about the value of artwork. When the 33 and a third long-playing vinyl album was introduced in 1948, art directors now had two 12 by 12 canvases to play with, front and back. And their work almost exclusively involved classical recordings, along with show tunes and jazz records. And it was with jazz records that we saw the most interesting artwork because how do you visualize jazz? You had to be very creative. One of the greats of the time was Reed Miles, who defected from Esquire magazine to the record industry. Conceptual illustrations ruled the album artwork world until 1956. But then something happened. 
photography came into vogue. Photographers were hired to take stylish pictures of artists, starting with jazz performers. But then there was Elvis Presley, too. His self-titled 1956 album featured a shot of him playing guitar. And as an aside here, some of the layout and topography of that record was used by The Clash for the aforementioned London Calling artwork. If you have the two albums, put them side by side, you'll see exactly what I mean. Reed Miles was one of the earliest photographers. He got about 50 bucks per cover. And when he was too busy, he sometimes sent this young photographer in his place. That guy's name was Andy Warhol. From 56 on, album artwork became a mix of illustrations and photographs. Okay, time for another story. Think back to the Live Through This album from Hole, 1994. On the cover, we see what seems to be a beauty queen with a bouquet of flowers. The model's name is Leilani Bishop. The concept Courtney Love gave to the photographer, whose name was Ellen Von Unworth, was to come up with a miscongeniality theme. And if you look at the whole logo, the font is extremely similar to what Mattel used with Barbie dolls. Through the 50s and early 60s, there were precious few rock albums. Albums were too expensive for teenagers, so they were aimed at adult buyers. And besides, the kids were happy with their 45 RPM singles of disposable pop songs. That began to change with artists like the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys. Yes, they all issued 7-inch singles, but those singles were packaged with other songs and sold as full albums. 1965 seems to be a dividing line between the era of the 7-inch single and the era of album rock. If a rock band was going to issue albums, then they needed to come up with artwork that appealed to rock fans. At first, the trendy thing to do was to hire art school friends. That's what the Beatles and the Rolling Stones did. You might have heard names like Klaus Voormann, who did some early Beatles stuff. Peter Blake and Richard Hamilton came up with the idea for the packaging for Sgt. Pepper. A guy named John Pash designed the tongue and lips logo for the Rolling Stones. And Andy Warhol was still involved. The Velvet Underground had become one of his muses and the house band at the Factory, his hangout for weirdos in New York. Warhol also acted as the band's manager, with air quotes, and producer, again with air quotes, because it's disputable exactly how much managing and producing he did. But he did design the famous artwork for the first Velvet Underground album. The cover featured a banana with the instructions, Peel Slowly and See. If you peeled back the banana skin, you got a flesh-colored banana. So read into that what you want. This type of packaging was hideously expensive, and subsequent editions were unpeelable. But if you do have an original release in good condition, it's worth a lot on the collector's market. If you can't afford that, there's a 2008 edition with the sticker intact. More stories about album artwork coming up with a look at some of the most famous designers in the business. The golden age of album art was from the late 60s until the early 1980s. The caliber and quality and overall artistic achievements were amazing. We had design studios like Hypnosis, based out of London. They did work for Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Peter Gabriel, and many others. Three guys were behind the company. Strom Thorgerson, Aubrey Powell, and eventually Peter Christofferson. They had a great run that ended with the dissolution of the company in 1983, and Thorgerson continued to create album art until he died in 2013. You can stare at Hypnosis and Thorgerson designed albums for hours. 
What are you seeing? What does it mean? Is there a deeper message here? If you were deep into music during that period, you probably bought an album with hypnosis artwork just because it looked cool or weird or scary or surreal. Some were illustrations. Others were posed photographs or photos that were altered in some way. What's that black obelisk that the family is staring at on the cover of Led Zeppelin's Presence album? Why is that guy on fire in the front of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here? And what are those four guys at the table in the desert doing on Muse's Black Holes and Revelations? What what are they supposed to represent? The four horsemen of the apocalypse? Maybe. But what do you see? How do you interpret it? And how does that affect your experience with Muse and their music? No one's gonna take me alive. The time has come to make things right. Another very famous art designer is Roger Dean. His specialties were illustrations of fantasy landscapes that he painted. Think back to pretty much any album from Yes, the prog rock band. He's also the guy who designed the famous Yes Bubble logo. Oh, and speaking of which, album art led to an explosion in the design of band logos. A logo is a very powerful marketing tool. Think about the Rolling Stones' lips and tongue, or Motorhead's devil head. Then there was Barney Bubbles. Yes, his real name. He did work for Billy Bragg, Elvis Costello, and Ian Jury. Vaughn Oliver created some great stuff for the Pixies, the Cocteau Twins, and director David Lynch. Stanley Mouse Miller's resume included The Grateful Dead, Journey, and the Steve Miller Band. If I ask you to visualize Springsteen's Born to Run album, it's simple. That was created by a guy named John Berg. He also created art for Bob Dylan and Barbara Streisand. He worked mostly with photographs. H.R. Giger, the guy who created the Xenomorph for the Alien movie franchise, also got into the album artwork business. He did stuff for Emerson Lincoln Palmer, Deborah Harry, and the Dead Kennedys. And then there's Hugh Syme, who did some great work with Rush. There's a German indie label called ECM that took album artwork so seriously that they had exhibitions in art galleries all across Europe. A number of celebrity photographers have shot the occasional album cover. Think of Robert Mapplethorpe's photos of Patti Smith back in the 1970s. And one of my all-time favorites is Peter Seville. Seville was the chief art design guy at Factory Records back in the day, the famous company based out of Manchester. He did everything from gig posters to album design for Joy Division, New Order, Roxy Music, Suede, Pulp, Martha the Muffins, and OMD. I don't think he does album covers anymore, but when he did, wow. One of his most famous creations was the packaging for Joy Division's 1979 album, Unknown Pleasures. The whole thing was black, save for what looked like a white illustration of a mountain range. But that's actually 100 consecutive pulses of a pulsar called CP1919 in the constellation of Vulpecula. It was found in a textbook called the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Astronomy. It's an album cover that launched a million t-shirts. Oddly enough, I'm wearing one right now. Also posters and imitations. Even Disney co-opted the idea in 2012 when they released a Mickey Mouse t-shirt using that motif. The one I'm wearing right now is a Simpsons-themed shirt that says Reverend Lovejoy Division. Does that kind of thing happen with artwork today? No. Joy Division and Shadow Play from the Unknown Pleasures album, the packaging of which was designed by Peter Seville. 
Back with a few more stories about album art, including the slow, slow decline of the art form. Like I said earlier, the golden age of album art extended from the late 1960s through to the early 1980s. But then along came the compact disc, reducing the palette artists had to work with from 12 inches by 12 inches to the size of a CD case, which is about 5 by 5 inches. What could you do with that? Well, again, designers had to get creative. This is how we ended up with CD booklets. Yes, the picture on the front was smaller, making it harder to pick up any details and subtleties, but with a booklet, you could have multiple pages. One of the more famous designers of the CD era is Stanley Donwood, who has worked with Radiohead for decades. He's one of the guys who can cram a lot of detail, obvious and hidden, into that 5x5 space he gets on the front and back of a CD. Let's examine the artwork for OK Computer as an example. First, the front. What do you see? Well, it's some kind of computer-generated image that appears to be a collage of images that are white and various shades of blue. We seem to have an on-ramp onto some kind of motorway. There are two lost child images in the upper right-hand corner. There's a blurred-out human image, a large black X against a dark blue background, and what looks to be like the nose of an airplane. All very mysterious. And of course, Radiohead fans know that their band likes puzzles and mysteries. So, what is going on here? Decoding and deciphering is all part of the fun. After years of research, fans have determined that what we actually see on the cover of OK Computer is a manipulated photo taken from the window of the Hilton Hotel on August 20th, 1996, when Radiohead performed at Hartford, Connecticut's Meadows Music Theater. What we see is the interchange of Interstates 84 and 91. The Hartford gig was one of the last the band played before returning to the UK to record OK Computer. Taken as a whole, the artwork seems to embody the stress of everyday life. Commuting, parental concerns, consumerism, and random everyday events in the age of technology that are at the same time mundane and frightening. There are plenty of CDs with beguiling artwork, but if we're honest, it's not just the same as what we had with full-sized vinyl albums. So, better than nothing. Unfortunately, nothing is exactly what has followed. In the age of the download and streaming, the magic of album artwork is disappearing. Instead of 12 by 12 or 5 by 5 inches, we have images measured in pixels. If you go to a Wikipedia page for any album, the artwork displayed is just 225 by 225 pixels, which is minuscule. What can you do with something that's slightly bigger than a postage stamp? Meanwhile, the music industry, which had a near-death experience thanks to its initial inability to adapt to music on the internet, has clawed its way back to profitability, partly by cutting costs. Fewer CDs are being sold, so that's a saving. Vinyl has come back, but prices and thus margins are very high, so vinyl records are more profitable than ever before. And the vast majority of revenues come from streaming, which means no physical product whatsoever. The role of artwork in the consumer's music experience is disappearing. All right, so what role will artwork play in the near, medium, and long term? It's unclear. We do have embedded artwork in many digital formats. It's called cover art or cover images now. MP3s, Apple's M4A, and ACC all have the ability to contain artwork within the files. But I wonder how many people take the time to notice it. 
And if you do bother to look at this art, it's often a low-resolution JPEG image. So is album art dying? Not entirely. As long as there's physical product like CDs and vinyl, there will be artwork. And although it's doubtful that as much time and care will be put into any new releases, but there are those who want to keep it alive. In 2009, Apple introduced something called the iTunes LP, which is a form of interactive artwork. When Nine Inch Nails released the Slip album, it came with images connected to each track. Tool, ACDC, Pink Floyd, and others have released albums and box sets loaded with art, even to the point of including LED screens embedded in the packaging. So we get moving pictures instead of a static image. And then we have 21 Pilots. They've gone to great lengths to create elaborate worlds and stories online and often begin with a clue found within an image connected to an album or a song. All right, so maybe we're seeing a big evolution in the entire concept of album artwork. Instead of just a picture that we can study, we're getting more chances to go down a rabbit hole, resulting in a far, far, far more elaborate and interactive experience than could be offered by any old school album artwork. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? And doesn't it open the door to all kinds of new possibilities? So far in this series of how the world of digital music, which is basically music on the internet, has disintermediated the old concepts, has looked at B-sides and bonus tracks, as well as what we used to enjoy as album artwork. Next up, we'll go inside records and CDs for the story of liner notes. What will become of them in a world dominated by streaming? That's part three of our look at digital debris. Meanwhile, you can find all sorts of ongoing history of new music podcasts for your binging entertainment, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any distribution platform you can name. You can also join in at my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free daily newsletter, so you're always up to date. And then there's all the stuff I post on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? And explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come-ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos 
films and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been. Um, a crazy journey. And and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like, like late nineties to now is still relevant. You know, like we broke our, our production company fella with uh, this music video for, uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake and Bieber called pop star. So it's, it's, it's been a crazy journey. And, um, and we're two kids from Brampton, Ontario that uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And, now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter. Uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what, what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And, and a lot of times to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into to make that product. And, and that, that piece of art affair is the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of <laughs> headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and 
the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the Hungry Like a Wolf video. Like what the hell compelled you guys being this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Architects with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.